To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So today on the podcast, I have back on my buddy Sam Davis. Uh, Sam is an absolute killer. Uh, the guy consistently produces trophies with his bow and arrow year after year. Uh, so much respect for what this guy does. Um, he's got so much passion for bow hunting and so just made for an awesome conversation. And so what I really wanted the point of today's conversation to be was, was what, how, what makes him consistently successful? What is what does he think his his biggest attribute towards his successful hunting is? And you know, I I had a hunch that it would be similar to mine, and uh, I think it is. So we had this great conversation, able to talk over a season from last year, uh, some of the things that really helped make him successful, and uh, just made for a great in-depth bow hunting conversation. So uh, I loved it. I think you guys are gonna love it as well. I just want to thank my sponsor for today's show, Stone Glacier. I am so excited to be partnered with Stone Glacier as I feel like their company builds technical mountaineering gear for the style that I like to hunt. Uh, everybody on their staff are top-notch, accomplished mountain hunters, and they build lightweight, minimalist gear that'll stand up under the harshest conditions. So this year I'll be using their sleep systems. I'm going to be using their tents. Uh, I'm really excited at what they offer here. So their Sky Air Ultra fits me perfectly. Uh, it's a, a bivy tent, and it's a modular system. So at its lightest, you can take in just the shell for 10 ounces. Uh, that's just over a half a pound. And, and then you can add pieces and parts. You can add a vestibule to help block the wind and to store your gear in a dry spot. You can add the mesh for when there's bugs. Uh, anytime I'm hunting with mosquitoes, uh, hunting where there's a bunch of mice so they don't run over me all night, or I hunt this one place that's got these giant spiders. I've also ran into um, uh, oh, scorpions uh, hunting down in Nevada. So that's where I'll employ that mesh. Uh, it also uh, has a, a bathtub floor that you can add to it for really wet conditions. And so basically you can take this tent from anywhere from 10 ounces to 3 pounds and being a bomb-proof shelter. Uh, where I'll use it most is about in the pound and a half range. It sets up with a couple trekking poles, and that's just so lightweight and great for my early season hunting, hunting on the move, easy to set up, so super excited about that. Uh, they also have some other tents. They have um, a, a two-person tent, and uh, I saw this one. Remy used it in New Zealand, the Skyscraper two-person. Uh, it's a self-standing two-person tent with a bunch of room, a uh, great fly on it to keep you dry. It's going to be a great tent. And word is they also have a freestanding one-person tent that's going to come out this year as well. Uh, they also have a Sky Dome six-person, which is a bomb-proof shelter. And then I'll also be using their sleeping bags. Their sleeping bags have a great weight-to-warmth ratio. They have a 15-degree and a zero-degree. The 15-degree, it comes in at right around 2 pounds, 3 ounces. That's a great lightweight sleeping bag. I'm so excited to be using this this season. Uh, it's just a, a minimalist weight, uh, uh, going to keep me warm. 
And uh, having a zero degree and a 15 degree gives me options. So like I say, I'm really excited to be partnered with this company. If you're in the need for any of their mountain gear, make sure to check them out at Stone Glacier. Okay, guys, make sure to check out everything we're doing at Eastman's. Make sure to check out the Beyond the Grid, uh, Eastman's Hunting TV. Make sure to check out the magazines, Eastman's Bow Hunting, Eastman's Hunting Journal. Uh, if you want a promo code for that, Elevated321. We'll get you both magazines and an Outdoor Edge knife for $50. Also, make sure to check out our internet research tool, Tag Hub. Uh, if you put Brian in as the promo code, save you a little bit of money at the end. Uh, those, those members also get the Beyond the Grid a month early. Uh, you get access to a bunch of promo codes with a bunch of our sponsors. Uh, they've got a few other perks to it, but make sure to check it out at Tag Hub. I know I'm using it a ton to research out-of-state units and opportunities and uh, getting ready for this application season, see if I can come up with some tags. So this is a great conversation. Let's get right into it. So this is Sam Davis. I'm your host, Brian Barney. Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. Yeah, we got her all figured out. Man, good to talk to you. Yeah, good to talk to you too, man. It looks like you had an awesome season. Oh, it uh, was. Yeah, a bunch of killer adventures and um, a bunch of time to go chase critters around. So, yeah, man, it was awesome. Uh, kudos to you too. What a season. Yeah, thank you. It was it was a blast. I, It was one for the books, you know what I mean? You just have those – you envision those seasons and just everything – you set your goals and you just try to, you know, lay it out. And it was one of those ones where it just everything kind of fell into place. So uh, no complaints at all. Man, that that buck that you had scouted real hard, that one with oh. the extra on both sides. What a buck! Was that out of your home oh. state? No, that was Montana. That was in your state. I was pit pocketing. <laughs> Good for you. Good I for know. you, man. You I found was... a great one. Ah, oh, man, and you know how that Badlands country is. You never know. Like if you turn up. I would have loved to have seen him next year, but I don't think he would have made it. You know, I think someone would have someone would have slapped him with a bullet. I think <laughs> yeah. I don't think he would have made it to five and a half or six and a half. I almost honestly looking at his jaw and stuff. I think he was only a four and a half year old deer. And there was a part of me that's like, man, it's like, do I let him go or do I not? And that day that I found him, I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and get an arrow. And because I watched him, I saw him three times throughout the summer. It's the first buck I've ever scouted and harvested i've never ever had that come together ever so it was pretty neat to do that i guess huh what do you think the key to making it happen on a buck you scouted was i think it's just honestly location i mean i just i just knew where he was and seeing him three different times i knew a, a high ridge you know those mule deer loved and all those, those high ridge vantage points they like vantage points as much as we do and it was it was a key factor, a big north north south running ridge, and it had some nasty gnarly fingers off of it. And I just I picked them off in there two different times on literally one side of a fence. Now it was all on BLM, but the way the grass lease worked, the minute those guys moved cows into there, he shifted and moved to the other side of the same same the big north north south ridge. He just moved to the other side of it, and I think. Just scouting diligently. I, if, if I wouldn't have scouted him and known when they put those cows in there, and I don't know if it would have taken me numerous days of finding him, but I had already found him after him and the other bucks had moved. There was about six of them, and they'd moved almost two miles, mile and a half, two miles, and I keyed in on that, and then he didn't leave. He was kind of there all throughout the tail end of September when I saw him and hunted him, so 
it was it was key. It was key to honestly. It was literally knowing where the livestock were because the minute the livestock got in there, and the grass got kind of grubbed down. Those deer moved locations not far, but they did move enough that it was key that I was there and picked up on that. Man, I'd say yeah. I saw you scouted him in velvet. Uh, looked yeah. like a bomber buck in velvet and in hardhorn. <sighs> I mean, he was just a great yeah. buck all the way around. Like those two extras on both of those fronts, just a specimen. It sounds like you were hunting him in a really cool spot too. Like it that, was that ridge line. Did you have to hike up into that ridge line and then you could kind of glass down each one of those fingers? Yep, exactly. You could, you could, you could sit on one end of it and you could, you had to. Man, it was it was really tricky because the winds always come out of the south, southeast there. I shouldn't say always. There's a lot of wind that comes out of the south, and it'll mess with you. Because I was on him two other times in September and never put a stock on him. The winds and where he would tuck himself in, he was one of those bucks that would go in the cedars. He wouldn't lay out in the sagebrush, you know, maybe like underneath one cedar or juniper and have sagebrush around him. So where you could like slide in, he would go 40, 50 yards into a deep north facing slope cedar thicket. And I couldn't do anything. I mean, like it was, there was nothing I could do, but sit there and watch him. And he did that two different times on me. And this time he, I would, so what I would guess to back to your question, that ridge would run north, south. I could, I could get vantage points on one high spot on it on the very south end of it, but I could sit and I could see some pretty good cuts of it. Other than that, the actual the day I spotted him, I was on the ridge adjacent to it that paralleled it. It was a smaller finger that ran north and south, but it was across the canyon, and I, I was looking up. I was actually, with my recurve, putting a stock on another buck almost a mile and something away, and I put the red jogged back to my pickup, chucked my recurve, <laughs> ran all the way back in there. In the meantime, I see two guys hiking in there at the bottom end of it. They were miles away. But still, I was like, no way. And so I, I mean, I was at a dead run with my wind, got my compound. I was like, I didn't want to mess this one up. Maybe it was one of those ones where I should have been diligent to the old recurve. But I hadn't seen that buck in a week. And I kind of thought maybe he'd moved on to the private. Maybe he'd got bumped. I didn't know where he'd went. And there was another big, clean four by four, probably like a 160 deer. It was just a pretty buck. And I actually put a stock on him and I missed him with my recurve that morning. So only I missed him at 28 yards, shot right over his back with the old recurve. And I was like kind of mad. And I just, I wanted to hike up that finger and I got to that ridge and I looked across the canyon to my naked eye in some of that skunk brush or like that, you know, that knee deep, I call it skunk brush. It's like a skunk brush or buck brush that grows on, on those north, north and south facing slopes. But if it's on a south facing slope by the end of September, it's starting to turn yellow and kind of red nose deer eat those little leaves like crazy and i looked in a patch of that and sure enough i could see a white butt and this is like eight o'clock in the morning on september 30th so it's like 90 degree day he was still up pull my binos up and i could see that big flyer come off the side i'm like you gotta be kidding me and so it was a mad dash truck was about a mile and a half back and it was as fast as i could go down that ridge got all the way down there chuck switched bows and then ran sprinted all the way back up and i had to go he was across canyon so not only was a mile and a half from the pickup but then distance wise i mean i had to do another mile maybe better loop to get to the top end of the canyon and get my wind as good as i could and you know you always say like don't just half-ass the wind like you know it better be all right i'm not even gonna lie when i saw those two guys i was like man I'm going for it. This buck is, I was on him two other times. I'd never put a stock on him, 
but he'd always gotten those in that those seed are so thick that I could never make a move. And I was like, I'm not going to let him do that this time. He's focused on this skunk brush. He's eating it. I'm going. And I just, the last time I saw him, he was grazing kind of, he was kind of working around and he had the wind kind of coming from his right to left. And I was like, I'm just going to play that game and try and slide in behind him and hope that my wind is running right to left. And I just kept sliding in, sliding in, finally I get eyes on him at about 70. He still he was facing dead away from me. And he had no idea I was there. I was already in my socks. And I slid around. I was able to cut another, I don't know, 15, 20 yards off of it. And he was sitting there grazing. I took a pretty hard quarter and away shot and put it right through him. And he ran about 60 yards. And it was on a steep, steep, steep cut. And I could see his antlers stop. And then his antlers disappeared. And a little two-point came blowing out of the bottom. And I was like, man, I think he went down. But I couldn't see the absolute bottom. And you know how a bow hunt is. Like, it could happen. They can get away, whatever. And I look up with my rangefinder. I just pulled it out real quick. And at 60-some yards, I could see blood on the grass from 60 yards away. And I could see my arrow laying in the yellow grass. And I was like, ah, oh, that's a pretty good sign. And sure enough, I slid around. He, When I saw his antlers disappear, he had fallen over. He was already dead within seconds. So, Dude, stroked him. Uh, yeah, it was best. Yeah, it was one of those shots that there's, you know, people would question, but when you know your gear, you know your setup. I took an angle that was, it was a definitely a, a very steep quartering away shot, and I had a little elevation on him, and and almost went in right, right in his hind quarter, and it came out right behind on the right pocket of that right front shoulder, blew all the way through him, and it was, I mean, it hammered him. So yeah, it was, it was a cherry on top to that whole adventure, and actually. First stock I put on him was a successful one, and all that time watching him this summer, it was, I was by myself, and as well as Andre, you just sit down, and it was just unreal. I was overwhelmed with emotion that day. It was pretty cool. Dude, that's way cool. That's as good as it gets. Like, that excitement yeah. of getting close, and like, I could, like, when you said you ducked down and you got 15 more yards, like, those are those, those moments that I just cherished that are like, uh, 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 so fleeting or they're so tough to create they take so much work and dedication you know to get to those points but those are the moments that i love you know where all those decisions yes. matter and uh like you like you uh you don't think about every decision you're making you almost let your instincts take over and like after you've been doing it for quite a few years like you have been consistently successful you just start reacting to it and it seems like you get more of those decisions right, you know, just like the more experience you gain. But, dude, that's so killer. Uh, you, you never know. That buck could have been uh, five years old or so. Like uh, living in those cedars like that's pretty smart. I know. And, he, yeah, he was. And he was one of those ones. He was – I mean the first time I ever saw him, he was on private. He was one of those ones that he rode that fine line of being the public-private game. And so, yeah, he could have. He could have slipped away from guys running. And, yeah, he lived in the thickets and – like I said, I hadn't seen him. I'd been out there three other times that week, and I hadn't seen him. So I had thought, yeah, that he had disappeared, and I'd kind of not given up on him completely, but I dang sure I was I was, I was switching my focus. I had kind of a, an A and a B buck, and I was on my B buck. So yeah, he could have he could have dodged a few guys. I was I was pretty stoked to see him when I saw him. I'll tell you that. Dude, that's so awesome. They they're tough to hunt in that thick stuff. Like you're a man after my oh, own heart. Like I like man. the more open the terrain, the more open spotty beds. Like the better I feel about my chances. And like even if he beds in, in some cedars or in some trees, if I can glass across and see where he's at, I feel better about my chances. Yes. But when they disappear into that thick. 
Like, I, I just more times than not, anytime I try to get in there and make a move, I end up blowing them out. Now, there's been a few circumstances where I've got on elk that I'm kind of chasing in the thicks. But for the most part, when they get in that stuff, it doesn't matter if it's a deer or if it's an elk. My odds of killing that, that deer or elk go way down. And, and just like killing that buck, like, you get better at deciding when to go all in. And so, like, that buck had given you the slip two times into those thicks. And so... Like, like you knew to be aggressive because he was out in the open, out in that buck brush, and now is your time to get on him. You know, I'm going to play that win, that, that left or right or whatever you had. I'm definitely going to come in that side, but now is my chance. Now I'm in. I'm all in. But uh, that cover makes it tough. Oh, totally. And, you know, he was riding. You get out in that country, and you get those, like, bands of cedars. You get, like, a flagstone, a flagstone ledge, you know. So it'll be, like, a flat-topped bench that's sagebrush, kind of a plateau. And then there'll be, like, a six eight foot wall of like a flagstone rim and then it's a steep slide underneath it and right on that flagstone rim that top rim of the edge of that plateau is all these spotted cedars and junipers and he loved riding those rims of that and then he would just crawl into those thickets and those thickets might be 30 40 yards across and and then 30 40 yards deep and he'd lay right in the middle of it and i literally would not have a play and you know what watching him you asked what what was how scouting helped Watching him helped me learn. I mean, not that I don't know a lot about those deer, but every time you go out, you're learning something. You should be learning something. If you're not, you're not going to get to be a better hunter, I guess. But watching his, there was a three by four that ran with him that I think was older. I do just body size and stuff. There's a three by four. He's actually missing a front fork. Really just a cool, big old pot bellied deer. That deer was in more of an open deer. He liked, he depended on his eyes. So watching the two mature bucks out of the group of six, that buck would always lay out in the open. I could have – I can't say I could have killed him, but that buck was in stockable locations numerous times. And it would just frustrate me because you would literally see the big three-by-four. He would lay down or vice versa. They would, But they would always be up, out, up feeding together and moving around, moving around. And then the big three-by-four would lay down, and that other buck would walk right past him. 10, 15 more steps right into the thicket and bed down. I mean, it was, it was every single time I, in the summer when I watched them scouting them, everything, you would always watch that buck walk right into the thicket, right past that big three by four. And he would, he would bed the three by four would always be out on a bench or up underneath a lone cedar or paw out underneath a sagebrush cut. I mean, he was always the one that would present himself and that other buck that I ended up getting, he would walk into the thicket. So yeah, it was it was really neat just to watch the deer habits for the individual deer. They were they were completely different on what they did. So that was really neat to learn too. I mean, I definitely I definitely learned something there. I definitely took note of that. Like there's there's two kinds of bucks. There's a buck that feels more dependent on his ears and his nose, and then there's that buck that's completely dependent on his and I can't say completely, but more dependent on his eyes and his ears, you know. I I saw this uh, a significant difference in the two. Man, like um, just personalities and preferences, right? Just like yeah, humans, totally. how we're all different. And, um, you know, not that one way's worse than another. Of course, like the buck that beds in the open is better for us bow hunters, but maybe he's <laughs> better at catching mountain lines or maybe he's better at catching the rifle hunters, you know, coming up some of those open ridge lines from the bottom. Like, like who know, they just uh, have developed their 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 own preferences to the terrain that they live in to keep themselves safe. But, yeah, that's super interesting, man. Yeah, it was it was neat to watch and to kind of to kind of put all that together as the summer went. I saw him first time I saw him was on July 22nd, and he was pretty much. I mean, the video that I put a video on Instagram, and I think that video might be 
that would my I think the other time I saw him was like August first, and then I saw him right at the end of August before I started chasing antelope and actually going hunting for myself. But so in that first video though, he's like full grown July twenty second. He's walking into the trees as I took that video. And the other bucks, if I would have panned out in the video, you can see they're all laying out in the sagebrush already. He was headed for the trees. So I mean, it started from the very first time I saw him to the day I killed him. He was going for the brush. It was just a just a heck of a hunt to put together and. You know, when he, when, he, when I grabbed a hold of his antlers as I was walking down there and picked up his head, it was like just a – I'd never felt that of actual scouting. You know all those whitetail guys out east, you know, they know those deer. They have them named, and so it's pretty cool when they finally get to lay their hands on them. But to actually do that on a mule deer, it was uh, it was cool. It was, it, was a, it was a neat feeling. Yeah, well, and a, a bomber buck that, you know, you just do anything <laughs> to try to get an arrow in to catch up with yeah. that one. It's super awesome. Well, like uh, that – you know, those bucks in that early season, like, um, you know, in, in the, uh, like, like late August, early September, you can catch them slipping, but hunting them in that early season is tough. And even throughout September and October, those bucks have like really good places that they prefer, like where those deer were living, like off those finger ridges. And I imagine like one side of the hillside ha- has got a lot of cedars in it and a lot of cover. And, and yep. it's like, like sometimes in that early season, I killed a buck in the early season, but they're not spread out all throughout country. It's not like hunting the rut where they make mistakes or they're traveling and they're split up and, you know, by themselves roaming around or they're with the does. Like during that early season, there's like a hundred canyons and coolies that you have to look over to find that one spot where those, you know, like you said, those six bucks were living or where those four or five yeah. bucks were living because yeah, all their a, numbers. It's a pocket. Yeah, yeah. They, they run in these bachelor groups. And so you can go through miles of terrain and not even see a buck in there. You've got to find that spot that they like. And so, like, that's what that scouting did for you is, like, being able to locate them during the, the summer routine, red coats on, out a little bit more, and then knowing where that buck lived and where he preferred and hunting that spot knowing there's some bucks around there but that time of the year you can go look at 10 or 15 other spots and not see a buck yeah totally that's exactly how it is and the thing is too is i think people think of i guess not all people but mule deer can do a lot with water and without water i mean what i mean by that is man i I think i honestly think they were going maybe a day a, a day without water i think those bucks they were going a long ways because there was a couple days. The one time that I spotted them in the, the early August, like August 1st, August 2nd, 10 days after I'd seen them originally, they were a long ways from where I'd seen them on July 22nd. But I watched them and I watched them and I watched them and they covered, I bet they covered a mile and a half. And I think they were coming from water. I couldn't go down there because it's private, but um, I think that that's what they were doing. And then I think also they might have had a seat earlier in july that was that had water in it and not only did the cattle getting pushed into that one side of that ridge move them but i think their water source had dried up and so then later august they were they were covering some country to go get water but i don't think they were going every day i mean i've always heard that um but i'd never i've never been a big trail camera guy out in that that dry country i just i never really I never really, I guess, paid much attention to it, but the one day I caught those bucks traveling, and they were down in some low country, and they were coming back for that big high ridge. I watched them hike all the way back up in there, and it took them they, – they caught a bed at about 10.30 in the morning. They were three-quarters of the way up that ridge, but, I mean, that that was something else to take into consideration, even in that dry country. Because when I think of the mount, when a mountain hunting deer, I think those deer can get a lot of 
moisture out of their feet. I think it's a little bit different when you're hunting 10,000 feet deer and they got those lush, you know, hillsides where the snow drifts are just melting into the, you know, just melted into the ground. I think that grass holds a lot more moisture, but that dry country where I was, I mean, to find a green blade of grass, those bucks had to work for it. So I don't know how much they were getting out of their, getting out of the, the forage. So it was, uh, it was some, that was also something I kept really trying to figure out because I would see him in the same, same spot. I saw him in the same spot back to back days, and then I guess I saw him four times, and then that other time I saw him, they were coming from a long ways, and I was like, man, they're getting their water from down there. So that was another thing that I put in my notes. It was just the water situation. I was definitely think they were they were bypassing water for a, at least a day, I think, before they were having to head out and find water. So mule deer are unbelievable animals, and I've hunted them in New Mexico and Arizona where they've had lack of water, but I've never. It's always during the rut, and those bucks down there are covering so much country. I think they're finding water <laughs> wherever the does are. So, anyways, that was that was something that I I really took into consideration too. That was different. Yeah, and that's, that's good insight. Like, um, you're right. Mule deer just don't have to drink that much water. And I I have keyed into water sources in like New Mexico and Arizona. It seems like the drier it is, the more water they need. But man, in that prairie country, it's amazing. Like, it seems pretty dried up when you're in there. And, yeah. um, like some of that country I hunt, I, I mean, I don't even know where they're getting their water from. Like every once in a while, I'll come across a, a spring or catch some tracks in there, or come across a, a water tank, but they'll, they'll be miles away for, from it. And yeah, yeah I think miles. they go multiple days without water in that country. It's just amazing. They just don't need much. It's not like an elk and, and actually like a, uh, like hunting Nevada is super dry and they've got some high country and it's a little bit lusher up high, but it's still pretty burned off. And it's amazing. Those bucks will go days without water. And I hunt them up on one ridge line where it's 3000 feet to the top. And I know there's no water on that top end. I've been all over it and every drainage, every bottom looking for water. You got to come all the way off the top and, and, uh, those bucks do, uh, come down, but I think it's like you say, like every other day or every couple days, two, three days, or maybe they start feeding their way down and make it down there at night, but you sure don't see them drink very much. It's just wild how long they can go without water. It is. It's crazy. It, it, that's, that's one thing that I, I can't get over. Yeah. Cause you think of elk and I mean, <laughs> they're two times a day sometimes those big bulls during the rut, but those bucks, they, those bucks are, they run a whole different program. That's yeah, for sure. Yeah. God, and speaking of bulls, you killed a great one this year, man. That was a good six point. Good on you. Yeah, that was a Wyoming uh, bull, right? Yeah, that was. That was a. That was an area that my hunting partner Zach and I we never hunted that unit, and we thought, you know, let's let's try it. Let's try some throw a dart at a map kind of thing, and let's try hunting that unit. And we'd went in there a little bit scouting and found some stuff that we'd like that you could. There's just nasty, gnarly. I mean, deep poles and big, steep country, and just that's it was it just had our name written on it and yeah we went in there actually my hunting partner zach he smoked a gorgeous six by seven on the second day of the season or the third day of the season i was out mule deer hunting and he called me and i was like holy cow you know you got it done and uh so then i just couldn't wait to get up there and elk and then it rolled around my wife and i actually headed up she had a tag too and we got in on some elk we had a day and a half to hunt and before my first stint of vacation were out after I'd been deer hunting and we got on a giant, almost got my wife a stud bull. And there's just too many, you know, it was one of those early, early herds where they still had 120, 150 in a herd. And there was a couple big bulls running that herd and didn't quite get it done. And then I went back up two days. I had to work for two days and I had the next six, seven days off. And 
I went up by myself and threw a camp on my back and said, I'm going to go into here and kill an elk or chase the elk until I kill one kind of thing. Took a couple of days worth of food and just babied out. And, uh, yeah, it worked out. It worked out slick. And, oh man, that was, that was one of those ones where you just, you, you, you want it, you want it to work out. You want it. This is how you picture an elk hunt to be. And it, it like all the cards fell in that direction. So yeah, it was, uh, it was sweet. I, I got, I was so anxious that morning to get to this spot. I wanted to just listen, but it was September 10th or 11th and it was just dark, dark, dark. And it was quiet and I'm sitting up there. I was so anxious. I left camp before I even brushed my teeth. So here I am sitting up on a ridge. I mix my little oatmeal mix. I'm sitting there in the dark and listening for bugles. It's about four in the morning, brush my teeth and I'm sitting there and I don't hear anything, don't hear anything. And it's so dark, but I want to just, you know how it is when you're just anxious. I had a good feeling about this spot and finally it starts cracking a little bit of daylight and I actually saw a couple headlamps way across this ridge and I'm like man there's nobody that's going to drop into here where I'm thinking about going and sure enough they post up and I can see them a little bit through daylight and about then I hear a whistle but it's a long ways below me or bugle but it's just the faintest of whistle I hear below me and I was like I'm, I'm going for it that was enough to get me to go like I couldn't see yet but I was like I need to go but it sounded I mean it was a long ways away and I bombed off in there and I'd kind of told my hunting partner, Zach, I said, Hey man, uh, he was, he was pounding nails. He's a carpenter and he's, he is his own boss. So he's on a pretty open schedule. I said, this is where my, I'm starting and I might end up all the way here. I'll hit you on the inReach. If I do, I might catch a ride in a couple of days. And he was all down for that. He was finishing up a big project and then he was going to head up and chase mule deer while I was hunting elk. So anyways, long story short, I jumped off and, uh, started just listening to those bugles and, I set a goal this year that I wanted to try and kill a pretty good bull. I, you know, I wanted to just not kill the first six point. I wanted to try and get a good one. And, and, uh, I just kept pushing down in there. And first thing I came on was a numerous, oh, I don't know, rag horns. And then I started getting into some little bit bigger bulls. There were some six points that still hadn't quite heard it up. They were, you know, 290, 300 inch bulls, four year olds. And they were kind of pulled off, and they were bugling, and now the bugles started getting louder and louder. And it sounded like Yellowstone Park, Brian. <laughs> and <laughs> it, was, it was in a burn. And so I just kept working my way down in there, and pretty soon I got eyes. Finally, I could hear a bull just piping off, and I got eyes on a bull across the canyon from me. And he was a stud. Um, I don't know if he was as good as the one I ended up harvesting, but he was a good one. Anyways, I, I – I was like, that will work. He had thirds. When he looked at you, his thirds kicked straight out, just gorgeous, big old thirds. And he kept, he was bedded. He just tipped his head back and bugled. And he was in a thicket on the north facing slope of a burn. But I was like, I think I can sneak in there. I think I can do this. So I got down across the creek and worked, started working my way up this, working my way up, working my way up. I dropped my camp because my camp was pretty heavy, but I still wanted my pack. Or I at least threw my camp out in a spot where I could come back and get it, or if I needed to come back, just stay there for the night. It was a good spot. There was some water, and I continued on stalking, and I slid in on him. And by now, I can hear the other side of the canyon where I was, and I can hear all the other bulls bugling. I can hear him better now that I was cross canyon from him. Well, I slide in on this bull and I kind of get to a spot where I'm pinned down at about a hundred yards and he can, he can see where I'm at. So I'm kind of done moving and I don't know if he caught me moving or what, but he stood up and he started working his way up the ridge and I went with him for a little ways. And then I looked back across the canyon at the other herd and I got eyes on another bull that was 
to get a little bit bigger. And my little bit of greediness got me, and I was like, this bull knows something's up. I'm going to backtrack down, grab my camp, and I'm going to bail across the canyon and work my way in over there and see what I can do. So I slid in. I had a good – not only did I have a directional wind, but I had an up thermal too that was going the same direction. So it was – I had a wind in my face that was probably a solid 10 miles an hour, just – just what you dream of, you know, when you're sliding in on a herd. And I was on a, I guess it'd be a, it'd be on a south facing slope, but it had a lot of topography to it. So there was some shade in it. Like it was really rolling south facing slope, but really steep. So the elk had pockets and stuff where even though it was south facing, they could get in there and they had a little shade and it was a really cool day. So they were kind of bedded out in the open. They were up grazing. But as I started sliding down in there, I was running fingers from finger to finger ridge to finger ridge, and I would get to one, and I would glass through this burn, and I see that I had a little bit of space and no no eyes on me, and I'd slide down, work my way to the next one, and from finger, I worked to the next finger to the next finger, and pretty soon, I popped up on a ridge, and I was, I don't know, I had cows at 60 yards, and I had raghorns at 70 yards, and I had a big bull, big clean six by seven. He was at about... 125 yards and from what i could tell he had about 40 head of cows with him and now i'm on a ridge that's running right to left and they're in a pocket like right below me everything's kind of down in this pocket right in front of me and i can move right to left with cover i can just step back about four steps move to the left pop back up i mean with that wind hit me in the face and i just kept hearing this growl of a bugle he wasn't even like screaming you know he would just that's all that I kept hearing, and it was down to my left, and so I just kept backing up, and I'd peek over, back up, peek over. Pretty soon, I back up, and I peek over this last time, and I see this big G3s that are just sticking straight. I mean, his thirds when this bull would look at him, he's hooked straight up, and I was like, holy cow, and big old sway-backed, and just had a noggin on him. I was like, that is a cool bull, and He's just sitting down there, and he had about 40 head of cows with him, too. So there's about 80 head of cows with two big herd bulls, and they're split up by some raghorns and a little creek running through them. I mean, these bulls are just screaming back and forth to each other because they got too close to each other is what I think it happened. So there's two harems now that are right on top of each other with about 10 or 12 satellite bulls. I mean, it is the elk party of elk parties. And uh, I just slid in. I kept working my way to the left. And pretty soon there was cows that were kind of up and milling around. Now, this is 12 o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, it's middle of the day, and they're doing all oh, it sounds like Yellowstone Park. And I just kept sliding in on them. Pretty soon I, I ditched my pack, and I'm laying on my back, and it's just yellow grass that's about 16 inches deep. And I can see eyes if I sit up, but if I lay on my back, I can't see any elk eyes. So I just start dragging myself down the hill with my fingers, laid my bow on my chest. And you couldn't, like, drag with your heels, you know, so that your knees came up. You just kind of had to leave your legs flat. And I drug myself. I ranged a tree that was 38 yards away. I got all the way down to that tree, and that put me 34 yards from a cow. And she was bedded, and I just sat right there with her and just waited. And uh, a big 5 by 6 came up. I videoed him. I made myself pass on him. And that other big bull was at 101 yards bedded, and then pretty soon he got up and started walking right to that cow that I had at 34 yards. After about two and a half hours, he got up at 239. I videoed him, 
And at 241, I stuck an arrow in him. He worked his way all the way up, started checking cows, and a littler bull came in, and he came up to bump him, and then he turned perfectly broadside, bugled, and at that point when he bugled, I sat up on my butt and got to my knees and came to full draw and settled the pin. And I remember watching that arrow fly through the trees because it was through that burn. It was like shadow, sunlight, shadow, sunlight, shadow, sunlight. I could see that arrow like flickering as it went through the trees and it hit him. And man, he, it was, it was unreal. That, that in itself, he was standing over there. This, I haven't told this story to a lot of people, but he was standing over the top of a cow. He had just sniffed her check scent checked her he was quartering away when that arrow hit him brian he didn't run he just took it just whop and that arrow was sticking it buried through the fletch and about 18 arrow inches of the arrow was sticking out on the off side i could see my broad is sticking out and he just stood there humped up he took about a half step so he's facing dead away from me he's below me on a bench he turns i knock another arrow he turns and when he spins the blood was coming out of him on the ground i could see it he bedded down next to the cow she smells the blood. She stands up. She starts sniffing the ground. She's kind of frantically like sniffing the ground, all this. In the meantime, he's like getting his head. His eyes are kind of rolling back. His head's wobbling. He stands up next to her, sticks his brow tines in the ground, and then just front flips off the hill and slides down. And that was it. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. That just happened. And then the whole whole herd erupted. But that was my elk hunt. It was uh, It was unreal. <laughs> So that epic, was a long man. story. Yeah, those are the days story, you but... those are the days you dream of elk hunting. Like uh, uh like like that's what we that's what we strive for and it doesn't always happen and sometimes it takes, you know, ten days elk hunting to find that and some sometimes you find it like on the first couple days or whatever. You just work into the herd, but that uh you're always giving yourself a chance. Like hearing that elk all the way down in that bottom in that other canyon, planning to come out to a different trailhead and have your buddy pick you up. Like you just worked down there and gave yourself a chance. Like you didn't know the party was in there. You heard one bull down there that whistled a long yeah. ways off. And you just start working that way and it's amazing. Like you gave yourself a chance and then got in there to just the absolute super party and catching a good win like that, man. Oh, that's oh. just uh, so advantageous. Like a lot of times when you work in close on elk, the wind gets fickle and, and almost every time when it gets fickle, they, they wind you, you know, but to yes. go in and to have that good win and know that you're playing it and then you like never gave yourself away. Like you, you just kept making these moves, never made a sound. But kept making these moves to just like poking over the hill and looking at them, trying to locate them over every ridge line, and then finally finding them and, and being able to move and just get away with your movement and not give yourself away. Keep that element of surprise and and even like as close as you could get or stalk to that bull was a hundred yards, but you were uh -huh. thirty five yards from the cow or thirty four or whatever you said. But you just then you just waited. You waited for your opportunity. Nothing knows you're there. It's just elk being elk. They're not on alert. They're just in there rutting. You got a good wind laying in the grass. You don't know how you're going to get up and shoot, or you don't know oh, how yeah. it's all going to go down. <laughs> but all of a sudden, that bull gets up, and here he comes for that cow that you're sitting right by. And and so many times you can put yourself in range of these cows, and it doesn't work out. Like it may take you uh, three or four or five scenarios like that before you finally arrow a bull, or you know you just get it all right on the first time, like you, and have him go right through. And also like a. Uh, passing those bulls like that's not easy to do a good oh, five man. by six a, a a good solid bull like it's tough to level up and go you know this year this is what i'm gonna shoot or nothing 
but you you just kind of work your way up the trophy rungs of the ladder and like you've killed a bunch of good bulls and now you're just to the point in your bow hunting career where it's like I know I can kill a big one if I just set my sights for it continue to hunt hard like I'm gonna create this opportunity I'm gonna get a chance at one of those big ones and man to see you like pull the whole thing off and have it come together man that's that's what bow hunting's all about that's that's it's, unreal well thank you it's, it's totally what we do it for I mean like that all of, and then like so not only that you know you, you I pull out the inmates and I text my wife tell her hey, I just stuck a good one I'll talk to you sometime tonight. You know, I don't know. This is it's two forty, but I mean that was one of those days. It it all sounded pretty close, but I mean I think by the, by the time I got out to the pickup that day, it was almost sixteen or seventeen miles logged. You know, it was it was a it was a full day, and so then I in reached my buddy. I said, "Hey man, meet me at that that uh, that spot that we talked about." But I'm coming out tonight, and I I'd never been out that way. And I know you've done that a million times. I knew there was a I knew there was an out, but I'd never been that way. So there I take off, and uh, I thought I'd be there at about 7, and I figured it would take me about five hours because it looked like it was about five miles. I figured by the time I got him cut up, everything taken care of, and I got five miles covered, I could hustle and get out of there. Well, I didn't get to his pickup till almost 10 o'clock, 9.30 or 10 o'clock. It took about two and a half hours longer because I hit deadfall and everything else, but it was all part of the adventure. Like That's 100% why we do it. Like, if it was easy, we wouldn't do it. Like, that's 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 just it, it, everything just was amazing about that hunt so dude part of the adventure and like to have a good buddy too that's all in like you are and all in. and, and yeah, you know he's able to in. pick you up at night or do whatever it takes like uh gives you a huge advantage when you're in the mountains and gives you like options you know uh, oh, uh yeah. to be able to do something like that but that is why we all why we do it and and like listening to you tell these stories like there's a you know, to to find success with the bow and arrow is extremely difficult, and you have to pay your dues throughout years. Like you've been at this a long time, and you've been consistently successful for a long time. Like just season after season uh, of good bucks and good bulls and making it happen. And it it seems like it's like I want to ask you what you think uh, think it is, but just like listening to your story, it's like a. You, you know, you, you you do all the little things like you're always putting forth the effort. You're always putting forth the miles, giving yourself a chance and then clutch when you do get those opportunities of knowing what you can get away with and what you can't clutch when the, all the pressure's on to make that shot. You drive that arrow home into that animal and not not to say that you've never missed, but, you know, you're good at, at capitalizing on those opportunities. It's like all these skills that come together to make you a consistent bow hunter that takes years to hone. But once you get there, man, it just starts to come together. And it's like, uh, you know, most of these bow hunting units we hunt, I mean, they're five to maybe 20% success rate at best. But somehow, like, you figure out a way to buck the odds year after year while still working your full-time job and having a family and taking care of everything. But when it, when it means that much to you, you just work tirelessly to, like, build that skill set to get to that point. Like, like, would you agree? Like, what do you think some of your best assets for being consistently successful are? I think it's exactly a lot of everything you just said, everything you said. And then I know you think this too, but I would say one of the biggest things too is like the, like, I don't want to say cliche because I always say predators never quit, but the never quit mindset of not saying that you're not going to get, you're going to have to go home sometimes, but just, just that, that, that perseverance of just, just always pushing it. And, and then also knowing that you do have, I do have a full-time job and obligations at home. So I have say six or seven days. I have this run to get this done. So 
I go all in for seven days. Like there's no like I'm going to hunt this morning and then I'm going to take a little time off here. Or I'm going <laughs> to go back to camp here. Like when I'm hunting, it's like a it's like a job. Like I don't know if it's I, I take it so serious that I turn on I turn it on. And when like that morning when I say I was sitting up on the hill eating my oatmeal, it was because I was anxious to like get after it. Like the game needed to start. The daylight daylight needed to get there because I was so anxious to get going. Like there's only so many hours of daylight in September and I feel like that time clock is always ticking against me, always ticking against me, always ticking against me. So that drives me to just yeah, I might like that on that mule deer. I might botch a stock. This wind might not be exactly perfect, but I got guys coming up from the bottom. This is the furthest this deer's out in the open right now. He's grazing. Like I need to make it happen. So yeah, I've I've blown. I think I'm very aggressive. I would say I'm a very a very aggressive hunter. I try not to be stupid in my aggressive moves. I mean, I think that's where the years and years and years of bow hunting. I've blown a pile of stocks. So I've honed my aggressiveness to be to be more beneficial or to, I don't know if that's the word, but to help me out more. I'm, I'm still very aggressive, but I think I use, I know when to make the move a lot better now than I did when I was, you know, 20 years old or 16 years old, but I'm still very aggressive. And I think when I listen to guys talk, other guys talk that, that haven't bow hunted as much, they'll be like, Oh, you know, like, look at this picture of this buck I got, or look at this picture of this bull I got, or man, I got close to this herd and I just didn't want to bump them. I don't think I've ever had that mice. I might have a cool picture, but I damn sure hope I got a picture of him with a with a smiling face behind him. Like, I don't. When I get there, it's like, if I've gotten that close, like I'm gonna try and get an arrow in him. The only thing that's gonna stop me is darkness or a wind that's blowing directly at him. Like, I mean, I can tell you other stocks were. I was running out of daylight on a six point bull one time, and it was an avalanche slide, and his cows were in front of him. And he could hear brush breaking or grass behind him. I just walked right at him at full draw until I I counted every step. I'd ranged him, and I just kept counting my steps at full draw, walking to him until I got to a comfortable distance. He stood broadside looking at me, trying to figure out what I was that whole time. But And I got an arrow in him. He killed him. But I look at moves like that. I don't know if I would have done that when I was younger. You'd have thought, I'd have sat on the edge of the trees, and it would have got dark, and I would have watched that bull walk out of my life. you know. But I'm very aggressive and some instances now granted i'm not chasing 400 inch bulls that you know that once in a lifetime is in arizona where maybe you want to be a little more um a little more smart about your stocks i'm not chasing 210 inch deer 230 inch deer that you know once in a lifetime stuff there i mean i'm i'm chasing nice respectable mature animals that i'm i'm willing if i bump the stock that i'll go find another one or i'll make it happen on them again so i think the no fear of bumping them really knowing that i have confidence i can find them again or get on another one and then just the never quit because man september there's only so much daylight so i think just that that's kind of my i think if i were to tell you that's that's what it is if i were to break it down dude i love it it's so spot on uh, uh so similar uh, so the same like always trying to give myself a chance and way too aggressive when i was young i've screwed up the stocks every <laughs> way from sunday like it's just like oh, you know on on good deer on big deer and so like you say that predators never quit like that's it's it's really like you've got a page you've got uh, uh awesome apparel too hats and stuff from predators never quit you've got a, a page on instagram as well as uh s davis 2506 
Hawks, which are both great follows. You're just such a diehard bow hunter, but you're so Thanks, right. Man. Like it, like it isn't cliche. It is like this never quit possessed attitude of just doing whatever it takes all the time, trying to give yourself a chance. And, and yeah, I, I'm like you where I've been too aggressive, you know, but I'm always trying to make it happen, you know? And, and like, I try to, like you said, you're always learning in the field. You're always learning and getting better. And I think like, I just keep developing my patience more and more. And the patient yeah. seems to help me out because yeah. I've still got that never quit attitude. And I still got that. I'll always go for it. I'll never make an excuse. Like, you know, you go hunt with me. There's no deer that's ever too far. No bull that's ever too far. Like I'm going to go try to give myself a chance and try to kill that thing. And, and I feel like I can kill everyone I see too. Like I, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah, I, I feel like I can kill him. It doesn't always happen and I make mistakes or maybe he wasn't in the right spot. But then I try to learn from that and go, OK, and try to hone into that environment that I'm hunting or just like that, that buck that, that you killed that kept going in the cedars and you didn't have a play to make or you didn't have a good play to make. And in your younger years, you might have dove in those cedars and went and busted that buck, but you knew better. And so you stayed out of there until you got a chance and then you caught him in the buck brush and then you went all in and like you had to jog back to your truck and jog back to him but you knew he was in the open and you could kill him like you saw it right there and so i think you're right like it is it's just this never quit possessed attitude like uh a lot of the animals i've killed like you talked about that bull that you walked it at uh full draw like you know borderline reckless but not in that twilight light like you know you can get away with more in that last five ten minutes you know like exactly. like the the yeah. animals will put up with more like all of a sudden if you wait it out you're down to the last 10 minutes of light, you can get extremely aggressive. Like it's amazing what you can get away with in those scenarios, just in that lighting, just in that time frame, and, and killed a lot of animals from being really aggressive. Like I killed a buck at the end of a hunt in a Wyoming backpacking hunt, which I love like your backpacking stories too, because I think that's like the purest way to bow hunt. Like when you can carry everything you need and go chase animals <laughs> around, like in that vast backcountry, but it was the end of a backpack trip, like dang near out of food in Wyoming and saw this buck and it, I wasn't even sure I could make it to him before dark. And we called him like, I think we called him the 10 K buck or something because I ran the whole way over and around. And I had, you know, this hillside, I, I was kind of hidden from his view. And then I had to go down the spur ridge line. So I was hidden the whole way down there and then come over the top on him. And, and, um, you know, I, I went like a possessed man to get over there and try to make a play, <laughs> try to make something happen when I don't even know if I have enough time to get to him with daylight. And wouldn't you know, it works out in the last, you know, I actually had minutes That's to awesome. spare, you know, maybe a, a handful at best. But, you know, creep over that ridge line and there he is and he's feeding down there and has no idea and put a perfect arrow in him. But that that uh, uh like controlled aggressiveness, uh, uh controlled aggression like and and i think as we get older and become better bow hunters we 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 do develop more patience and knowing when to go all in and when not just because you know we've made so many mistakes and busted so many animals but we're still just gonna always give ourselves a chance it seems like yeah that's exactly it. it's that yeah the 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 patience and of knowing when i was gonna say that's that is a big thing that i think i've learned almost every year it's like you learn a little bit about where patience has helped you, but still being super aggressive when it when it needs to happen. And when it needs to happen, you got to go now. Like that that buck this year, uh, I sh I shot a Wyoming deer, and uh, oh, that was a great buck too. Yeah, and that deer, 
I saw him and uh, I was with a guy, Jordan Gill, awesome guy. And I, I've never hunted with Jordan. This is that we got put together this year, and it was so sweet. He's a hell of a cameraman. And yeah, I thought he's a photographer, right? Yeah, Jordan. Yeah, yeah. He's a super good guy out of Montana and great photographer. And he's a hunter too, so it was so much fun. But we'd had some other guys that bumped a deer that we were on that day and a stud, and I was kind of kind of heads hanging low, you know, and. We're coming up with the game hunt. It's probably 5 o'clock at night. This is September 4th, though, so we've got a lot of daylight. But it's probably 5, 6 o'clock at night, and I look – oh, I don't know. I think Rangefinder wouldn't even hit him. 16, 1,800 yards away, I see two bucks bedded up on this butte way the heck out there. And the way the, the, the terrain laid, they had such advantage. Anyways, long story short, I was like, man, we got to go – we got to go a long ways around to get to them. And I was like, well, we got to hustle. I mean, like this is one where we literally got to hustle. And I was like, I think they might be up by the time we get up there. They might be up and feeding. Like it was so, you know, five o'clock at night, September 4th. By the time we get to them, they could be up and gone. So we take off and get after it. And the last time I saw them was probably a thousand yards away. And uh, they were still bedded. And I slip in, get all the way up there and kick the boots off. And I work up there and sneak up on a bed that's empty. I get to 30 yards from the sage rush where they should have been. I sneak up. There's nothing there. And I'm like, man, so you know, you're, I'm kind of exposed, but I was, I was, I was, I was wisely sneaking up that ridge, knowing that they might be up and moving. So I was definitely looking right, left, right, left, right, left the whole time as I'm easing up, right, left, checking wind, everything's good. See, see the sagebrush that they were bedded by, both of them are gone. All of a sudden to my right, at least I kept myself in the shade. So now the shadows have gotten long enough where when I snuck up to that hill, I had a little bit of shade blocking me on the right. So my I wasn't exposed. I mean, Smart. I'm six foot. I was six foot two. I bet this this shade is six foot. So maybe the top <laughs> of my hat. But I when I positioned myself, I slid up just underneath this rock, and I looked to my right, and there's a deer walking right at me at 130 yards in a bright sun. Sun's in his eyes. I'm to the east. Or, excuse me. I'm to the west of him. And I just sit tight. But it is – there's Brian. There was no cover between me and them. It was Yellow Grass Hill. I was probably – elevation-wise, I was probably 30 yards higher than them at 120 yards, two bucks. And I'm like, man, there he is. And he's just feeding and messing around, feeding and messing around. Well, every time he'd put his head down and just graze, his eyes would go into the sagebrush. And I would just get my feet set underneath me, kind of shift it, get to my butt. And also I just put my bow on my chest. And he put his head down, and I would just drag, and I was going right at him. I was above him, so I was working downhill at him in wide open yellow grass. I didn't even have sagebrush on my side, and I was just dragging my heels right at him, wide open. Every time he put his head down, I would just pull myself at him, pull myself at him. There was a little knob I could see between him and I, and it was 90 yards from me. And I was like, man, if I can drop down about 15, 20 yards, I'll be able to get that little rise in between him and I. And pretty soon him and that other buck start working towards me from like 140, 130, 120. At 120 yards, they bedded down in the sagebrush. They took an evening bedding spot. They got up and grazed. Now it's about 6.30, 6.45. They both bed. And the sagebrush is covering their eyes. I can just see his G2s up. So you see his back forks. The other bucks bedded facing away, and I just keep dragging myself, dragging myself. I get below that the view of that knob. I'm not to that knob, but I get to where that knob covers my eyesight slip up there and then i knew of course evening like he's not going to be bedded that much longer right because it was already and i got all set got my feet set i so instead of like crawling on my knees up onto that knob i stayed back using my height and i just got to right where my eyes could see over it and i knew my arrow would clear 
that knob in front of me. But so I was standing because I like standing when I shoot, not me on too. my knees. Yep. And it's a lot quieter, not crawling through the grass on your knees. Even if you take your pants off, you're still breaking those branches and or just the the dry grass. And so I stayed standing, and about an hour later, he stood up, stretched, walked two steps, turned perfectly broadside, and I was able to get an arrow in him without even knowing I was there. But all back to the aggressiveness and the patience, like. I was so aggressive on that stock with, oh, I look back at that one and it's almost like you get a little bit lucky too, you know, <laughs> like I just was like, I'm going for it. I'm going all in and I'm just going to slide my butt on my butt right at him in the wide open. Every time he put his head down, every time he put his head down, every time he put his head down and man, it, it couldn't have worked any better. And then they worked their way up and bedded and then I was really able to get aggressive. But yeah, a couple times this year I was super aggressive and it worked out in all scenarios, and it doesn't do that every year. I've had years where I could have blown all three of those stocks I just told you about, but <laughs> it was uh, the mule deer in Wyoming was definitely a super aggressive one. Man. I mean, wide open, right at. Them. There's so many details to your story that just take years of bow hunting to be able to to know those the those uh those those little details to the stock and they make such a difference like the the standing up i'm same way like i'm i'm a 15 yard or 20 yard worse shot from my knees and not that i can't make those shots but if i can get a standing shot like i just know i'm gonna be rock steady like my my pin doesn't wander as far i can hone in and so you know not that you know a lot of you know nearly half my shots do come from my knees but if i can stand i like that so like you were coming up to that rise and you didn't like crawl up to the top where you could just kneel and shoot. Instead, you're like maybe three yards back and you still have to broach the top of the hillside to see the buck. But instead of being on your knees three yards ahead, you're three yards back standing and just bringing your eyes over that hillside. And it's almost like when you work up to a hillside that you're going to be looking over, you, you keep your whole profile down below that hillside. You take those steps to where you think you can see and then you rise like really slowly up and those those animals catch that movement and like if you're holding still it's amazing what you can get away with just like your aggressive stock in that in that blonde grass you know where you just knew when to keep still and you kept the element of surprise again those bucks never picked you off because they never caught you moving every time their heads were down you were sliding and you were quiet enough where they didn't pick you out but every time their heads were up you freeze and sometimes those buck heads or even doe heads will come up and they'll even look right at you and you think they're oh, yeah. looking you think they see you and then pretty soon like a minute later if you just hold still they just go back to feeding like they don't pick you out so like like all those those little nuances to the stock like that have just taken you years of bow hunting to 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 be able to learn all that and have that be like imprinted in your dna like uh imprinted in your in your instincts that where you don't got to think about it you just react that way and so you know you you make a stock on a buck but you're just doing what you can get away with now us in our younger years or like a (laughs) you know like less experienced bow hunter like instead you get way aggressive and you move with their head up and all of a sudden the gig's up and you busted that stock and you never gave yourself a chance because you just don't know like what you can do and what you can't but once you hunt enough and you get enough stocks and chances and opportunities and you learn from them like you know what you can get away with and what you can't and you push that line you're just constantly pushing that line and you're trying to make those right moves and every time that buck picks up his head you're frozen and you're low enough profile to where he's not picking out your silhouette of a human standing there like he can't pick you out 
and then when his head yeah. goes back down, you're sliding down the hill. But it's like this this delicate dance with these animals, like keeping that element of surprise, but also trying to put yourself in range in 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 open country. And the other thing he did too is like using the topography, like uh, constantly hear you talking about these stocks and slipping into the bottom or using that little rise to hide yourself. Like it's amazing what you can do with very little topography. It, it's such a huge part of the stock. It's like being able to, to recognize what you have. And, and even like hunting, I know you hunt a bunch of antelope as well. Like oh, yeah. antelope, you never know what you have until you get out there. And it's kind of the same thing with the deer. Like you'll make a plan and you'll think that this will come together and you'll be able to stalk there. But a lot of times you don't know what you got until you get to a couple hundred yards and, or until you get out there and make a play on an antelope and you just use the terrain and you just keep trying to kind of hide yourself and doing what it takes to keep that element of surprise. But it, it's amazing how you can work like – uh, what looks like hardly nothing, you know, and, and, and make it into something, you know, in that open country. It, it's just wild, that topography, how it does lend itself to the stock a lot of times. It does. There's a, there's always a lot, lot more folds in the ground than a guy thinks there is. That's what I always think of. There's a lot more folds and cuts or just, yeah, just the, the way the grass lays or the way the grass sticks up in spots. And you were talking about, like, watching those deer, too. The thing that I always think about is, You'll watch those deer when they do pick their heads up and when they're on to you a little bit or when they think down, they'll quit chewing. You'll see their mouths go, you know, because that chewing is loud to them. You know, think of when you're chewing on something, you can't hear what someone's saying to you, but you'll watch those deer and they're looking. You'll watch their jaw chew, chew, stop chewing. And then they like are real. That's when they're really assessing it. So that's when I'm like, if they've done that like once or twice, then maybe I don't move the next time they put their head down. Maybe I let them put their head down and graze for a little bit, pick their head up on their own. Then when they go down to graze, maybe that second time, like that's something I always watch is like, if they ever seem like they maybe have caught something or heard something, they'll do that. Like they stop chewing and then they, before they go back to chewing or that, you know, that's, if they do the head bob, I think you've already been maybe busted. If they stick their head down and pop their head back up, that's a good old doe move. But I watch those bucks. Like I just think about that buck going in on that sock or like, watching them as they're grazing because a lot of the time a deer will pick his head up to take its next step and so like watching not only is their head down and they're grazing but watching that front shoulder and if that front shoulder starts to move maybe you shouldn't be moving right then maybe take a that's where you stop because he's about to pick up his head it may only be four inches but he's picking his head up to take a next step to grab that next little bite so those are things that i definitely and that's when you're in tight i mean <laughs> that's usually when you're almost within bow range if you can see all that stuff happening but usually that's like the clutch times is really watch that jaw and if that jaw stops and they're really listening and they're not chewing if they're chewing and slobbering and coughing and then i don't think they give a shit they're, they're just kind of doing deer stuff and they'll they go right back to eating i'm gonna move on them but whenever i see them stop chewing and you see like that flicker in their eye kind of look around and they it's almost like they do like a one two three count then they'll start chewing again i'm like yeah they heard something they think something they're onto something a little bit so maybe i'll let them take two more steps without moving and let them calm down again but that's that's one thing that i i try to do i mean it doesn't always work out but if you're in that tight that's something i try to watch for is that just body body movement too so smart 
Man, you're learning your quarry that you're hunting. It is like a uh, to read the mannerisms uh, uh, of these animals. Like uh, you, you can read their behavior as you get to know them, and then you that tells you what you can get away with and what you can't. When you need to slow down and when you don't. Like you can you can tell by looking at their their ears or even like a, a elk or mule deer to look at their horns. I can tell if that yeah. mule deer is on alert or not on alert just by looking at his horns. Like not even seeing his whole body. Like you you get to know these animals. And know, you know, not that you know everything that you're thinking, but you you know when they pick up on danger. You know uh, when you're pushing the limit, or maybe they've picked you out. Where, like you say, now is where I'm going to stop moving, and I might sit there for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Like you, you get to really know these animals, and I think it's a major asset. Like when I can see that animal that I'm stalking. Like uh, I, I like to use the topography in a hillside and be hidden if I, you know, if I can, but. I also like to keep my my eyes on that animal. Uh, you know, totally. when I'm coming over that ridge line, or just looking which direction they're looking, or are they all feeding? Like those deer are gonna key you in, or deer, elk, or whatever you're after, they're gonna key you in to to are they seeing danger? Do they know they're being hunted, or are they just feeding naturally, like being deer and elk? You know, and and those are usually the ones that you can kill. You know, or the the ones that. That, that don't know you're there and you keep that element of surprise but yeah reading those mannerisms is huge and especially like hunting elk like a six-point bull like half the time i never see the bull i'm just watching his horns just, and what he's yeah, doing totally. and where he's walking yeah. you know they're a dead yep, giveaway yep yep yeah you watch those elk and the, the ears like you said that's a big thing but you watch those cows those cow elk the thing about i think that everybody sneaking up on elk is just there's always it's just the, the sheer numbers and so trying to watch one cow, you know, you get, you think, okay, I got this cow, I got this raghorn here, and I got, there's my bull, right? There's my target. And then all of a sudden you take a step and you look over to your right and there's a calf looking at you. You're like, ah, like elk are, elk are the tough ones just because of the sheer numbers. I think they're the, you can always keep eyes on that bull. And if you can get him off by himself, you know, where he beds on the upper third of a herd, man, that's, that's what happened this year on that bull. He was bedded towards the upper end of those cows. So it was key just to get close to that top end. I knew he was going to be there, but those friggin' elk, man, I've been busted so many times when you think you're just being a ninja and you look over and there's a spike standing there looking at you. You're just like, ah, <laughs> like, uh, I've been busted a lot there. Oh, no doubt. Me too. Yeah, it's always tough to beat those numbers. And, and mule deer too, they humbled me this year in the late season, like trying to, to hunt those rutting bucks that were with those does the same thing you're trying to hunt those numbers and it usually isn't ever the buck that picks you out it's all the does he's with or it isn't the bull that picks you out it's all the cows he's with yeah and, and uh you can only get so close and then you just got to let it develop and let it happen just like you did on that sneaking in as close as you could to that cow and then having that that bull uh come check her out or whatever and capitalizing on that moment um but yeah you're so right like reading those mannerisms of those animals is um is huge huge uh what about any films you film any of those hunts this year the only hunt that i filmed that was actually uh when jordan gill was there he he filmed that that uh he he took picture he did photography and he filmed that wyoming mule deer hunt so i don't know what the plan is that was with stone glacier um those are pretty good group of guys and uh that was filmed but as far as personal stuff i i put the camera kind of away this year and i just wanted to hone in and do my own hunting and just get after it myself and not worry about the dang camera to be honest with you and it's it's i really wanted to get a big bull killed and not have to worry about the camera and 
I did. So yeah, it's nice to focus camera. on the hunt too, oh. isn't it? It's like so yes. enjoyable too. It's like the yes. it so ups the difficulty level like when you're trying to film it. And you're right. Like I don't I don't know. Like I definitely have to mix and match. I couldn't do all of them that way because it puts you at a disadvantage, you know. And when we love to yeah. do it so much, like sometimes I just want to go hunt, you know. And so yeah, it is a mix and match for me. So I don't blame you a bit, and especially when you have a goal of killing a a big bull. It's like man, I'm. I'm going to put all my effort in trying to kill one. I'm not going to mess around with the cameras. I was just asking because I, I love watching your stuff on YouTube, so I was just wondering. Yeah. yeah I can't well, wait to see what Gil comes up with. Um, those those Stone Glacier guys are great, man. I I know a, 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 a couple of those guys and really like them, and they're just uh, great hunters too. Yeah, they're, they're killers themselves, that whole crew, man. <laughs> those are good guys. But Yeah, I'd yeah, hate, to be, a, to, hate to be a big bull or a big buck on the mountain with those guys chasing them for sure. Yeah, but no, that'll <laughs> no be kidding. super cool to see that come out. Huh? I bet the footage yeah. is epic. Yeah, I think it turned out pretty sweet. So we'll just have to see. I, I don't know what their plans are, if it was more of the still shots they were wanting or the video footage. So I know that Jordan, he took a pile of both, so. We'll have to see. I know the still shots. It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool to see from a different person's perspective because I never have anybody following me around with a camera. And you've you've seen it, you know, yourself. And it's to see that perspective of it. It's uh, it was pretty cool to see some of those shots and stuff. To, to I guess just to see it and to show my little girl. It's kind of neat to to show her what dad loves so much. You know, Damn. but pictures yeah, was, worth a thousand was, words, right? And when oh, you can totally, when you when those guys totally. capture it behind the lens, you know, they it's so tough to like set up self timers and try to capture, you know, pictures of you. So like I you know, I do okay at it, you know, but gosh to have a cameraman there that captures it from that angle and like that's that's what he's focused on. You just get some yes. unreal images that really capture what we love to do. Yeah, and the authenticity. I mean he's got there was so many pictures I didn't even know he took, you know, like I didn't even know he was taking a picture. He just said, do your thing. I'm going to follow you. And so I did my thing and he followed me and man, it turned out pretty cool. So it was a whole new experience. Like I said, I'd been solo deer hunting for like the past five years. Every one of my deer had been by myself and to have a guy falling around, it was, it was, it was kind of cool. Actually, I actually talked to somebody cause usually I'm sitting there by myself for days on end, but I actually got to visit with someone at a camp this time, so that was that was unique. <laughs> <laughs> that, it's nice too when you can share a hunt with somebody, isn't it? Like having a good hunt yeah. partner or a good buddy to be with and share it. It it uh, uh, does make it enjoyable for sure. It does. You know, I I got my my hunting partner Zach, and me and him we do everything together. But even when we go elk hunting, it's like, all right, man, you're headed this way, I'm headed this way. See you either in a couple days or maybe we'll hear each other on the inreach if we kill something. I mean, like, just like you, just like you and your buddies. I mean, you, you might, you might have the trucks might be parked at the same spot, but you're gone. Like, and you don't see each other for a couple of days. So that's how it's been the last few years and to this year. So it was kind of cool to, to hook up. And then when I killed that bull, my buddy Zach, he picked me up that next morning and then. The next day, him and I and another friend actually came up and we packed that bull out. So just the pack out too was fun. The camaraderie there was it was cool and it was a it was a grueler. You know, it was it was one of those ones where we we did we threw packed it so it was like eleven miles grabbing the meat about three quarters of the way through and then ran it all the way out and it was just a good one. One of those ones where people are trying not to fall in the creek because our packs were so heavy and it was just steep and gnarly and we were listening to bugling bulls as we were packing elk out and yeah man like I said, this September. The only thing that could have capped off this September to be better is if my wife Peyton. We got so close. Uh, there was there was one canyon she didn't she didn't really want to drop into that hell hole that I was in. So we were we were hunting some of the fringe areas there, and 
when you hunt the fringe areas, you usually run into a few more people, you know. And so there was two opportunities that we were close with her throughout the rest of the season. And one time there were some guys that were walking out in the wide open and either the elk saw them or winded them. And then the other time the guys started bugling and cow calling at the elk that were on this ridge. And we were within about 60 yards of them. We were just about to seal the deal on a bull. And so she got close, but she didn't get one. But that would have really capped off the season if she would have got an arrow in a bull. So next year, I guess. Yeah, she's a great bow hunter. It's cool that you guys have that and can spend that time together. And yeah, I mean, it's just the way it goes sometimes, right? Hunting public land. It's like a lot of times it's just you versus the animal and you're the only one there. And then, you know, every once in a while there's a guy walking a ridge, you know, oblivious to the elk down below or, you know, (laughs) uh, or, or, you know, maybe he's already on him and you have to go the other direction, you know? Yeah. Every once in a while they'll mess up a stock. It's just... It's just part of the game. You try not to let it get to you. But, oh, it sucks so bad when you're, like, 60 from him, like, about ready to close oh, the deal. Yeah. What a heartbreaker. Yeah, I mean, if it would have been a guy that could reach you out, I mean, sure, her range isn't quite that far. So, I mean, yeah, we were right there. It was right to where. And that bull was just working the back end of the herd. We were coyoting him, as you would call it. We were on a just on a beef cow trail, so it was just powder, just quiet. And we were right on the edge of the timber daylight was cracking they were nose to the wind walking away from us and we'd slid in right behind them just nose to the wind right behind them and we'd cut the distance and we were on a trail it was so quiet i mean i was more worried about the dust we were kicking up that they were going to see that more than the sound or <laughs> anything i mean that's how quiet it was we were sliding right up in on behind them before everybody started calling at them but that's like I said part of the game and yeah. we got to see bugling bulls and she got to watch that bull scream and go nuts so that's what it's about. It's not always about sticking an arrow in something, too. We always got to remember that. Like, I just look at every time I come off those mountains or come out of those hills, it's my body's beat. And it's like, that's who I train all year for is to, to this is what I live for. It gets my heart going, whether I get a draw back and put an arrow in something or just get close and come out there with my head hanging low. It's that's that's all part of the game. It is all part of the game. Yeah, you got to enjoy all of it. Uh, 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 oh, I just wanted to state, like, uh, walking on that cattle trail, those those hard trails, man, those things are key hunting elk. Like, when you oh, can get on a trail, man. they just keep you so quiet. Like, on any stock, like, if you come across a trail, it's just a gold mine. It's like, oh, I could actually move quiet. Yeah, <laughs> like, and quick. So Usually great. you can speed up. You know, you get there, you just speed up, too. Like, if, if you're trying to cover country, you get on a trail and – it gets quiet and it gets fast. I mean, you don't have usually debris in the way, and yeah, you can move. And it was exactly that, too. We were scooting up on those elk. Just they were nose of the wind walking, and we slid in me. Like it was, ah, it was perfect. <laughs> Dude, so awesome. Well, um, Man, I uh, I think I could talk to you about bow hunting all night. Another stellar <laughs> season, dude. Um, so fun. The conversations are so in depth, and it's like uh, uh, just hear the experience, you know. And I talked to you about bow hunting, but man, I really enjoy this. I I always really enjoy having you on the podcast. Thanks a bunch for coming on, man. Oh well, thanks a lot for having me, Brian. And I like I love listening to your stories, and I've learned a lot from you just listening. So you're a wealth of knowledge, man. We all we all look at what you do, so it's it's pretty awesome to, to visit with you about Bohan. Because like I, I could do the same thing; I could talk about it for hours. <laughs> well, uh, thanks so much, brother. Um, yeah, I'm gonna we'll keep in touch for sure, and um, yeah, I'd uh, uh, definitely have you on the podcast again when you have another epic season. Like I know you're gonna have, you're gonna put in the work and um, get it done, like you do year after year. Uh, but so fun, man. Thanks again, and uh, let's keep in touch. All right, sounds good, Brian. Thank you. Okay. All right, guys, that's a wrap.
man, such a great conversation with Sam, isn't it? He's just a diehard bow hunter. And uh, uh, so many of the things he says just resonate in my own hunting and uh, or things that I do or that brings attention to it. And I really think, you know, being a cerebral hunter, like thinking about this stuff and uh, uh, thinking about how you're going to approach the hunt, thinking about what other guys do in those situations, uh, just furthering our knowledge in the in the, the planning phase or in the knowledge phase is it's um, it's going to be wired into our our instincts and make us better in the long run. So I just love listening to that stuff or having those conversations. Just a great episode. So thanks again to Sam Davis. Make sure to check out his social media. Uh, you can find him. Uh, Predators never quit. And uh, also uh, Sam Davis. I think he's S Davis on on instagram there but you can find him uh yeah just a a super solid guy and great bow hunter so thanks again to him thanks again to our sponsor stone glacier again so excited to partner with these guys they just have great mountaineering gear uh so impressed by these sleep systems these tents i just got it the other day that that modular system i was telling you guys about um they got a great price point and it's it's really you know, one of the only companies building these these bivy tents, you know, set up ultra lightweight, minimalist, and then being able to have a modular system that you can add to it for whatever your needs are on that specific hunt. Uh, so excited. I'm excited for that freestanding one-person tent as well when that comes out. It's just going to be a bomb-proof shelter. It's going to have its poles set up really easy. Uh, you know, it's going to be a little bit heavier than a bivy tent, but they do so good at keeping their weight down on their gear. Uh, because they're mountain hunters themselves. They know it. So, so impressed by these tents. So impressed by these sleeping bags. Uh, they're just great, high-quality sleeping bags. Um, yeah, it's, it's going to be great stuff. Really excited about our partnership this year and using all their gear on my hunts. So, if you're in the market, make sure to check them out over at Stone Glacier. And uh, check out everything we've got going on at Eastman's. A couple great magazines. Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal. Eastman's Hunting Journal. Uh, some good beyond the grids here. Really excited to see we start releasing our new season in April, I believe. So, um, you know, we still have new stuff coming out from now till then. But all the stuff I filmed this year, all the stuff the guys filmed this year will start coming out in April. So really excited for that. Be on the lookout. Man, just fun having these conversations. Um, just had some super solid podcasts here lately. Um I, I just love these in-depth conversations. It's just um, uh, bringing you guys the content to help make you consistently successful. And it's out there for us. Like there's great critters out there and there's great opportunity for adventure out there right now. Like in, in a lot of these different Western states. And I know like there there's more people hunting, you know, with the, the COVID there's crowds, but you can just go find, you can still find your own experience. You can still go find quality critters. Um, it's it's just so fun, such a fun endeavor to be involved in. So yeah, I'm stoked for this season, stoked for drawing some tags. Uh, been applying here and there and getting ready, uh, getting in my training here, uh, running, shooting my bow, and um, looking forward to next season here. Uh, so it'll be here before we know it. The time to improve is right now. So thanks, you guys, for the support. I really appreciate you. And uh, with that, I'll check in with you next week. <laughs>